Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I think this is going to be episode number 69. We're approaching 70. When I think about how long it takes to put out one of these episodes, literally it takes about eight hours to put out an episode, a podcast episode. By the time I get done recording it, editing it, doing the ID3 tags, doing the write-up, we're in at about eight hours, believe it or not. So people that put out a podcast a day are a lot more efficient than I am, that's for sure. Or it's just their full-time job. And this is not my full-time job. In fact, I sometimes feel pretty guilty about the time I devote to this hobby. <laughs> well, this week's episode is going to be the last of the, of the recordings that, that Neil, Jack, and I made while we were in Turkey, we were sailing on the boat. Most of this takes place when we were just sitting in a cafe uh, after we'd put the boat up and we talked a little bit. So it's going to be a little bit disjointed because I just went through and did the quick edit on the MP3 files and, and joined them together. So you're going to jump from subject to subject, but if you don't enjoy it, <laughs> just wait for the next episode. Now I got an email from, and I don't have it with me, you might be able to tell I'm going on a walk right now. It's uh, Friday, September 4th. It's about 8 in the morning right now. So I'm going on a walk trying to do this introduction. But I got an email from a listener, and I really appreciated this email because he said one of his favorite parts of the podcast, or the podcast that he enjoyed the most, were the ones I talked about the gear, and he suggested that I might talk about some of the gear that I use for single-handed sailing. And that's something that I've, you know, I've alluded to a little bit, but, but let's just go through from the front of the boat to the back of the boat, my setup for when I go sailing single-handedly. First of all, at the bow of the boat, I have a long bowsprit that sticks out quite a ways. When I sailed across the Atlantic, we had a hanked-on lapper, hanked-on jib, that went out there way out at the end of the bowsprit. And we were constantly reducing sail when we sailed across the Atlantic. And the reason I hadn't put roller furling on was this is back when roller furling was not as reliable as it is today. And I'd heard horror stories about people not being able to roll up their roller furling or their roller furling jam. So I thought, well, I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to go ahead and have hanks on and I'll have a downhaul on the hanks and uh, we'll just do it the old fashioned way. Well, every time we would have to reduce sail, somebody would have to go out on the end of that bowsprit and gather up the sail. Even though we could pull down the sail, we still had to gather it up and tie it off. And we had to tie it against the lifelines. And then inevitably, a big wave would come by and <laughs> take all this 
gathered up sail and we broke several stanchions just from the hydraulic forces of the waves hitting the furled up sail that were tied against the lifeline. Now we could have tied it lower to the ground, but then uh, it has its own problems. I don't need, we tried everything. So when I got to Gibraltar, the absolute first thing I did was say, I'm never going out on the end of that bowsprit again. I'm gonna put roller furling on no matter what it takes. So I decided to do a personal survey. So I started walking through the marine at Gibraltar and going out to people that had roller furling. And I talked to them and there were two roller furls, there were two designs. One was Pro Furl and one was Furlex that seemed to have the fewest problems. In fact, the people that I talked to that had Furlex, not a single one of them ever reported having problems with the roller furling. Now, I think I've told you about my friend Jack who has, I'm not sure if it's a Harkin or Hood roller furling, and it's a piece of trash. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I need to double check which brand it is, but it's, it was, it's jammed on us all the time. And he's had to send it back to the factory uh, twice. It's a bad design because what happens on, on my friend Jack's roller furling is birds sit at the top swivel, <laughs> excrete their, uh, their poo onto the swivel. The excrement gets into the bearings and jams the bearings. So when that happens, it's virtually impossible to get that swivel to turn and pull the sail out. Bad design, bad, bad, bad design. So, Anyway, I chose for my roller furling, Furlex. And the advantage of Furlex was I could pretty much put it together and, and assemble it myself. So we spent a lot of time in Gibraltar. First of all, we ordered it from a company. It came in in a couple days. It arrived pretty quickly. And the instruction manual for putting this up was a very good instruction manual. And we were able to with the help of two French sailors that were in the marine at the same time, we were able to assemble this. I had to, uh, it comes with its own stay. So I took off my original stay, my original st forestay, and it came with the fittings to put on a new stay. So we had to cut the new stay and feed up the foil. And uh, there's a nylon, um, sort of a bearing that goes on the uh, on the cable itself and this aluminum foil turns on this cable as well as this, the top and the bottom swivels and at the same time I sent my sail in to be cut down and put on a bolt rope so it would go up the foil so that was the first thing that I did that it really enables me to start being a single-handed sailor I would never get on a boat again without a good quality and by good quality, I really mean Furlex or ProSail, and probably Furlex number one, good quality roller furling gear. Now, of course, I will get on a boat, but it's not gonna be my boat. I'm not gonna buy a boat that doesn't have a good quality roller furling. Now, my staysail, which is really more of a storm sail, I put my staysail up after the winds have come up. It's not on roller furling yet, and that's one of the things I want to do at some point in time. I just haven't wanted to spend the money on undoing it because I can stay on the deck and pull that down. But I would like to have a roller furling staysail as well as a roller furling jib. But at this point in time, I don't. 
because it'd be a lot nicer just to roll up that foresail and deploy the staysail from the comfort of the cockpit. And if you're a single-handed sailor, that's important. Next thing I have is the ground tackle. And the ground tackle is, uh, I have a 35-pound CQR. Now, some people think the CQR is not that great of an anchor with the new anchors that are out. I've always been fairly happy with my CQR. I haven't dragged very often. So I'm happy with the CQR and it fits easily right next to my bowsprit. So I can pull it up and it stows very easily right next to my bowsprit. I have some rollers out on the bowsprit that keeps the, uh, the chain away from the hull. Now, when I first got the boat, the rollers were right next to the hull. And when I deploy the anchor, the chain would rub up, rub up against the top sides of the bow and put scratches in it. So I built some new bow rollers that go out on the bowsprit and keep the chain when I deploy it, or the anchor road when I deploy it, away from the bow. Now, my first original design on this, I had two bolts, or actually three bolts, that went from one, one bow roller on the starboard side to the other bow roller on this, this, the uh, port side it, because I have two separate roads that I could deploy off the bow. I've only deployed the second road one time and I didn't really need to. I just put it out just to be able to be more comforted because I was leaving the boat at anchor for a day and I didn't want to worry about dragging anchor. So I had two anchors out and I only really used that second road um, you know, really only once or twice, not very often, but it's there if I need it. And the important thing if you're a single-handed sailor is you need to have redundancy. If you're a racer, you've got a whole fleet to take care of you. But if you're a single-handed sailor, you need to have some redundancy because nobody's gonna be there to take care of you. And sometimes getting gear is going to be difficult. I ran across, well, let's see, a few years ago, my friend Bud and I were stuck in a harbor in Ostapalaya. It was really windy out. The Meltimis were blowing. And we pulled into this very, very well-protected harbor, all-around protection. And in that harbor was the whole fleet for the Aegean Yacht Rally. So they were in there, you know, hiding from the Meltimis as well. Well, we went to dinner with them that night, and there was a Japanese gentleman that had a Grand Banks powerboat. He was the only powerboat in the fleet. We got to talking to him. He had lost three anchors during the rally, so you can lose anchors. And he went through the stories of how he lost them. There's no point in me going into them right now, but bottom line is <laughs> have, have redundancy in your anchor gear. I think he had to borrow one anchor from one of the other members of the fleet to continue on with the, uh, with the rally. So I have a bow roller off each side. Now let's get back to the reason I was talking about this. So on my original bowsprit, I had a a three bolts going from one bow roller on the right side to the other bow roller on the left side. It's port and starboard, or starboard and port, I should say. And those, and even though I sealed them as well as I could with 5200, 5200 is a marine caulk, a very good sealant adhesive marine caulk. If you don't know, it's 3M 5200, sort of the standard on 
a lot of boat builders use 5200 all the time. Now, I'll tell you a quick story on 5200 though, just to give you a heads up on it. When I was building my boat, I'd be down in the hull of my boat working on attaching pieces and bedding pieces down and using 5200. And I would get, I would, be, I would feel very pleasant. I wouldn't say hi, but I was very content to be working down there. And then the next day I would have these nasty, nasty, nasty headaches. So I went to the doctor and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my boat on the weekends and I'm having terrible headaches on Mondays and Tuesdays. What do you think's happening? He said, what are you using? And I said, I'm using uh, 5200. And he looked it up and he looked up the uh, solvent in 5200 and it was toluene. And he said, toluene is known to, number one, be a carcinogen. Okay, there's the word I'm looking for, a carcinogen. And secondly, it will give you those headaches. So basically, I was almost being a glue sniffer. Not quite, but after that, I started wearing a, uh, a respirator when I was working on 5200, and I'm much more sensitive to it now than I was before when I first started. So if you are using a lot of sealant, get yourself a good respirator, change the cartridges on them on a regular basis, and uh, don't experience what I do. I probably lost a few brain cells in doing this. Well, anyway, continuing on. I have these bolts going through the bowsprit. Those bolts were what caused me to have to replace my bowsprit because over the years, water got around the 5200 and rotted out the bowsprit at the bolts. So when I replaced my bowsprit, what I did is I built uh, rings that went around the bowsprit. And on old boats, that's what they did. They didn't put bolts through the bowsprit. They put rings around the bowsprit to hold the gear. Well, I learned the, whole, all, the hard way that the, the old guys knew what they were doing. So I have rings that go around the bowsprit that hold the bow rollers. So I won't have this rotting problem on the bowsprit. There's two critical pieces of, of structural woodwork on my boat, the bowsprit and the boomkin. And my boomkin, I still have bolts through it, so I have to keep my eye on that one. But I've also got a wood that's not as rot prone as as my original bowsprit was. My original bowsprit was made out of Douglas fir, which is a very good boat building wood. In fact, it's the only wood that uh, one of the books that I read when I was researching different woods for, for boat building, it's the only wood they say you can build an entire boat from Douglas fir. And it's a very structurally strong wood. It's somewhat prone to rot, but it's not totally prone to rot. So, all right, so I've got the bow rollers up there. And of course, the most important part, in my opinion, for single-handed sailors, is the electric windlass. Now, the way I have my electric windlass hooked up, which is quite a bit different from most of the charter boats that I see, is what I see on charter boats is uh, when somebody comes into anchor, they send somebody forward, he opens up a hatch on the foredeck that has the chain and then he plugs in the handheld unit that goes to the windlass. Well, first of all, that plug-in is going to fail. It's going to get corrosion on the plug. It's going to quit working at some point in time and it's going to 
quit working when you need it to work. That's bad design. You should never have a plug-in unit because those plugs are a source of constant maintenance and constant failure. Trust me, I know. I have a plug that plugs in my auto helm back in the cockpit and I'm, I have to replace that plug probably once every two or three years. And it's always a, a question when I get on the boat and plug it in for the first time whether that auto helm is going to work. The reason it doesn't work is it doesn't have electricity to it. So on charter boats, they have this plug that plugs in up there and hopefully it'll work for them. And then there has to be somebody up there that sort of pushes the anchor over the front. Then it starts going down and he's standing there watching the chain go out. Well, on my boat, I have to have this electric windlass. You know, when I started out, when I first built my boat, I had a hand windlass. One where you'd go up and crank with your hand, doo, 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 like you're doing <laughs> one-handed push-ups. And it would bring the anchor up, you know, two or three inches for each stroke, or six inches for each stroke. And it would take forever to get the anchor up. Now, when I was sailing up in the Northwest, and even through the Mediterranean, this is what I used. And it was, quite honestly, effective, reliable, but it would be impossible for a single-handed sailor. I shouldn't say impossible. It would be very difficult for a single-handed sailor to go forward and slowly pull up the anchor and then be able to control the boat because you can't be both the bow and the stern at the same time. So when I got to Malta, I'd had some pretty bad experiences um, <laughs> prior to that while I was sailing through Spain and Italy and Sardinia with this hand winch. When I got to Malta, I replaced it with a, an electric windlass. And I think I've told you that I don't think much of uh, Maxwell windlasses for the price that they charge. They have absolutely no customer service. And <laughs> I'm not too happy with Maxwell windlasses, but they seem to have almost a monopoly on, on electric windlasses for, for boats. So I'm on my second Maxwell windlass, but I'm not particularly happy with with the quality of Maxwell, the first, the first windlass should have lasted a, a lifetime for the price you pay for it, but it didn't. And they don't make it easy to service. Uh, won't go into that. But anyway, an electric windlass, when I got to Malta, suddenly made my life a lot easier. And the way I hooked up my electric windlass, and the way I would suggest you hook up your electric windlass, if you decide you want to do some single-handed sailing, one other way that they do it on a lot of boats is they also will have foot foot switches for up and down on the deck so uh, you'd you'd step on it and the uh, the anchor would go up or down and there's a switch for up or down now those are okay at least they don't have a, a cable that you're plugging into those aren't that bad but again how can you be at the bow and at the stern at the same time and then some people also have um, a duplicate set of these buttons at the stern so if you don't want to have this cord, that would be the way I would recommend you doing it, that you have these buttons or switches at the stern near the cockpit so that you can control the anchor with, uh, from the cockpit. Now the way I do it, because I didn't want to have extra wiring on a boat, because wiring is something that breaks down all the time. You're going to have problems on a boat and <laughs> a lot of the time it's going to be 
your wiring, your electricity is going to be your problem. It's going to be corrosion at the terminals. It's not the wire as a general rule, it's corrosion at the terminals. And even if you're careful with putting shrink tubing around it or greasing up your terminals, you're still going to get corrosion at your terminals. Trust me, I know. So I didn't want to have switches at the bow, foot switches at the bow, and uh, switches at the stern. I just wanted to have one place where I controlled the windlass from. And so I have one plug-in that doesn't go in and out. It stays in all the time at the middle of the boat with a long cord on it. And this cord I feed up through the center hatch. And this cord is long enough that once it's felt fed up through the center hatch, I can walk forward with this cord, with this electrical cord. And in the, the cord has a box that controls up and down on the windlass, up, up and down on the anchor line. Or I can go back to the cockpit. So if I'm coming in to anchor, the first thing I do is I go up forward, I take the cap off the anchor chain and make sure it's running free and, and I give it a little slack so that the anchor is just hanging over the, the bow a little bit so when I start letting go of the anchor chain I can lower it down in a controlled manner from holding on to this cord with the switches. So I'll go up, drop a little bit of line, maybe maybe a foot of anchor road out so the anchor's hanging over and it'll 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 feed out easily. And then I go back to the back and and in the meantime, this is if I'm just anchoring, that's all I really need to do, just to make sure the anchor is going to be running free. In the meantime, I'll just go back to the stern and pick my spot and drop my anchor slowly control in a controlled manner and I've talked in great detail about how I anchor and I talk about this in my lessons if you listen to my lessons because I go into a lot of detail on anchoring techniques in my lessons because I notice that's that's where a lot of uh, club sailors or weekend sailors that's where they lack their their experience they just don't have not anchored enough and they don't know really how to anchor and I go into a lot of detail on anchoring techniques in my lessons. So I'm not going to repeat that here. I think I've talked about that in other podcasts. So I will lower down my anchor and, and anchor the boat. That's all there is to it when I'm by myself because I can control the, the anchor road from the stern of the boat. And vice versa, when I need to pull the anchor up, and I've had to do this in strong winds, and I've had to bug out by myself in strong winds, I can be back at the stern of the boat, having the engine in gear, motoring forward on the anchor road, and pull up the anchor as I pull forward. Now, I don't have to have somebody on the bow doing it, I don't have to have somebody watching it, I can do it all from the stern. So if you're going to be doing single-handed sailing, you're going to be anchoring a lot. Uh, I think an electric windlass, and a way to control that windlass, from the stern is essential boat gear. Now the trouble with it is there's always the risk that uh, that that windlass will break down at some point in time and I've had mine break down on me. It never quit working entirely the one that I replaced but it just could barely 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 pull it up but in an emergency these electric windlasses a good one will have a, a handle that you could ever so slowly pull up the uh, anchor line if you had to. And that would be a real difficult situation if I'm single-handed sailing. Maybe a better thing to do at that point in time if I have to leave 
and the conditions are bad would be to put a buoy and a line on the anchor chain and just let it all out if it were an emergency like that. And that's the other thing you should have at the bow of the boat, at the mast and at the stern is a knife that you can use to cut lines with if you need to. Now the knives I use are Moro knives, Moro knives. I think it's M-O-R-O-K-N-I-V-E-S. It's a Swedish knife. They're very inexpensive and they have a sharp, sharp, sharp edge and they hold an edge. And I have three of them on my boat. One at the stern that's just uh, permanently attached to uh, one of my stanchions. And, uh, and then I always carry one on my belt. And then, well, at least I try to, I shouldn't say always, but I try to carry one on my belt. And I've got a couple more, but I just haven't placed them yet, but I'm going to find a better place to put them. And I, even though I say you should have a knife on the belt, I don't yet, and I should. The problem is I just haven't figured a good place to put it where it's not going to be, get caught by lines running back and forth across the deck. You'll find your best ideas sometimes don't withstand <laughs> empirical testing. So, um, all right. Now, that's all there is to it if you're single-handed sailing. When you come into anchor, you roll up your jib on the roller furling. If you've got the staysail down, you've already taken down the staysail probably. You're probably just motoring in. But I've come in under sail by myself and anchored usually in fairly calm conditions, not really strong wind conditions, but I like to do it just to test myself once in a while. Got to lower the mainsail. I don't have roller furling on my mainsail. It's a, it's a hanked on mainsail with slides and full battens. So it's always a bit of a headache to, to pull the mainsail down by myself. It always comes down, but it takes time. So if I'm coming into anchor, I'm preparing for this ahead of time, unless it's really light winds. I'll already have my mainsail furled on the boom with some ties on it, two or three ties, not a lot of ties, but just enough that, uh, that it's furled and out of the way. Because when I drop my mainsail, that mainsail uh, will block my vision forward. Then you're coming in, you don't have much canvas on and you drop your anchor and that's all there is to it. Test your anchor, get your uh, snubber on Make sure you have a good nylon snubber. If it's an all-chain road, make sure you have a good nylon snubber. I made a new one up last year, and it's doing okay. But you have to have a snubber, and the snubber will basically act as a shock absorber to your, uh, to your road. If there's strong winds that come up, it's, it acts as a shock absorber, and there's more detail on that on the, on the lessons if you decide to ever purchase the lessons. What else? All right, that's under anchor. You know, and I've gone on for 28 minutes on this. I'm looking at the recorder. There's more to single-handed sailing. I'll probably try to talk about uh, coming in and med mooring single-handedly, maybe in the introduction to the next uh, episode. I'm looking for material. Guys, I need some material. I'm out of, uh, <laughs> of pre-recorded uh, conversations with Neil and Jack and I've done interviewing the podcasters I guess there's one or two other podcasters I can interview but I'm out of material you know who I'd like to interview uh, I've reached out to Brian Toss a couple times but our schedules have not matched up he's uh, he's a guy that wrote the Riggers Apprentice a standard book on my boat and I recommend 
that that's a book you all buy. It shows you how to make splices and, and Jack and Neil and I practiced making splices last year, ice splices, uh, following the diagrams from his book. A very well illustrated book on, on doing these splices. So, but Brian and I have not been able to catch up. We had an interview scheduled and, and it turned out that day his mother passed away and, and then I went sailing and then he, he sent me another email saying, I'm open this weekend and I was going out of town and I haven't heard back from him yet so I'll try to reach out to him again. But the other one I'd like to interview, somebody else I'd like to interview, I reached out to the Royal Yacht Association, they haven't responded. Don't know why, I'm not competing with them. I just want to talk to them about their association out of Britain, or the uh, Royal RYA, Royal Yachting Association. They are similar to the American Sailing Association in that they provide certifications for British sailors. And the other one is the Cruisers Forum, or the Cruising Forum. Whoever's put the Cruising Forum together, I would like to interview them because I think that's a great resource. When I'm looking for information on a specific area or a specific problem, that's usually where I'm finding some answers or some, uh, some suggestions. It's a very active forum. Uh, I recommend you take a look at it if you're a cruiser, if you have some questions on gear. Somebody's posted something on it there. So it's, I'd like to reach out to them and I'd like to talk to them about their forum. And I'm open for suggestions from you guys. If you have some stories to tell, let's arrange an interview. I like to do it over Skype. Skype gives me fairly good quality. And I'll do a quick advertisement. If you're looking to pass ASA 101, 103, or 104, I can't teach you to sail, but I can help you prepare for the written portion of the examination through my audio courses. They're available at the website, which would take you to a service called Gumroad, which allows you to download the MP3 files. Also, if you don't want to do that, you can find the lessons in Amazon and iTunes primarily. And I think iTunes is probably a better way to download them. Amazon doesn't seem to make it easy for you to download my audio lessons because they're tied in with Audacity. And Audacity, <laughs> I may as well give it away if I'm running it through Audacity. They pay the, the content creator almost nothing. So I'm, I'm not willing to run it through Audacity. So that's it. Let's get on to... The last of the interviews that I had with, or the last of the conversations I had with Jack and Neil this summer while we were sitting at, I think most of it, we were just sitting down at a table having a beer at our hotel in Bodrum. So we've been making this recording from the patio of the hotel that Jack and I are staying at. It's on the main street through town, so there's traffic going by all the time and it's costing us 60 Turkish lira a night which is a little more than $30 no it's not it's less than $30 it's about 20 20 to 25 dollars now Neil on the other hand won't stay at our digs he's paying a lot more what are you paying Neil I'm paying um, $500 for three nights Neil's paying $500 for three nights so, you know, Neil's got nicer digs, but he's not as an active road as we are. Actually, you're, you're pretty busy up there, too. He's in the good side of town. We're just in downtown. 
But to get to the boat from here, a Dolmish goes by about every five minutes, and you hop on the Dolmish, pay three Turkish lira, and it'll take us right out to the boatyard. So it's very easy to get in and out of the boatyard from here. And it's Ramadan now. Oh yeah, Ramadan. Ramadan today is the um, 18th of June, and Ramadan for this year started Yes, or I think started today. Today it started. Last night they had a bunch of fireworks, so I think last night was the last night before Ramadan, and today Ramadan started. I'm not sure when Ramadan starts. It has something to do with moons, and I don't know what it has to do with, but they have to fast during the day, and they don't get to eat until the evening, so a lot of people are sleeping during the day. Not at the boatyard. The boatyard is as busy as ever, but anyway, that's why you're hearing all this background noise here. So, Neil... We put the boat up. What did you think of the process? Um, well, it was an interesting process. It's the first time since I've done it. It's the first time I have done something like that. And as you said, it's hot and it's sweaty and it's dusty. But for me, it was a learning experience. Um, most of all because of what you showed us with regards to not exactly winterizing the engine, but preparing the engine for being um, unused for nine months. So I was interested to see how you got the oil. Yeah, we were also going to do a winch education class with uh, Professor Franz, which somehow got lost in the shuffle. Yeah. But um, it was good to see how you used that, um, that sturdy metal pump, which is ironic, of course, you can buy them by the dozen, at least they're, they're plentiful in, in Turkey, but you can't get them anywhere in the States, um, which are strong enough to pull the oil out of the dipstick area so that you can drain all the oil out. That was very interesting for me, as well as the other bits and pieces that you showed us about the, the uh, dual fuel filters, changing the oil, changing the oil filter, etc., etc., and the rest... The rest is pretty much what you'd expect. You had to take the battens out, the sails, take the sails off, clear the, the decks, um, and then put on that, uh, that rather impressive cover you've got. So nothing was um, brain surgery, but everything was small things that had to be done in a methodical way, which was about what I expect. That's pretty much been my experience with boats. But... Um, yeah, working in a uh, in, in in a boatyard at the end of a sail, it's you, you feel as though you're earning your leisure after the fact. That's really what it feels like. But uh, no complaints. It was all a good educational experience for me, and um, it makes the beer taste even better at the end of the process. So um, one of the tasks that Fran says we had to do was empty the water out of the boat, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, he's got a hand pump and a foot pump in the sink. And uh, the foot pump's for salt water, and the hand pump is for the fresh water out of the tank. And he says, well, you know, one of the jobs we've got to do is empty the water out of the boat. Uh, okay, how are you going to do that? He's going to say, why are you going to stand there and pump the water out with that hand pump? I'm looking at that going, you got to be joking, really? <laughs> That's a lot of pumping. <laughs> so... Um, I thought, why don't we stick a hose down and siphon it out? And uh, luckily for us, Franz decided to accept that, and we tried siphoning it out. So that was a lot easier than pumping for about an hour. Yeah, and if I may, <laughs> that's actually kind of the motif of the, uh, of the trip, I have to say. Uh, Jack is obviously a very smart individual um, and quite a successful businessman. 
but he's had a he's had a very practical hands-on background as a diver as a pilot he knows how to use his hands and get things done um i on the other hand uh i'm far more um uh, let's say less practical and uh, I haven't uh, really ever had a job where I've had to use my hands. Um, I was a bartender once in Beverly Hills, um, and that's probably the most manual labor I've ever done, at least that I've been paid for. Um, but yes, that, that was interesting. Uh, Jack was able to um, come up with this, this process for getting the water out, and all I could do was admire it and describe it using polysyllabic words, which, as I said, pretty pretty much sums up our different competencies over the past 10 days. But hey, I can quote Shakespeare too, which also has some value, at least uh, at least uh, if only serving as the court jester at the, at the court of King Cross. <laughs> Mousetraps too, yes, yes. Well, maybe when we've had a few more beers or maybe a bottle of Rocky, uh, some of the older non-sailing stories may come out there. They're of limited uh, naval relevance, but they can be quite entertaining. You know, when Jack suggested that we siphon it out, I thought, well, why hadn't I thought of that before? These things are obvious. But, but what I hadn't ever seen done before was the way he got the vacuum to start on a siphon. Normally, a siphon, the whole key is you have a hose that goes into um, a tank, and as long as the outlet is lower than the level of the water, the water will flow to the lowest gravity point but this was a long hose this is a 50 foot hose and I thought that's a lot of air to suck out to be able to get the siphon working but Jack said oh no what we do is he took a took the water hose we had the water hooked up and we had water running in the other hose and he ran it back through there and filled up the hose with water and then took the hose away and that created the siphon which I'd never seen done before and I thought was very clever you know, Jack shaking his head like, well, it's so damn obvious. Well, it's only obvious once you've done it. So, it's, yeah, everything I do is easy to me. Other people say it's hard, but everything you do is easy once you know how to do it. But, yeah, it was a real clever way. Set the hose down, let it drain out the tank, and then the last little bit we just did with the hand pump. So that was a really good, uh, I learned something from these guys. Everybody learns something from somebody along the way, even Shakespeare. Uh, not only that, he also uh, persuaded us to flake the mainsail on the boom rather than putting it on the ground in the dusty, dirty floor of the uh, the boatyard. And I, I looked at him askance because I flake a sail. I flake three sails every week in my racing team, and we do it on the dock. And it seemed very unlikely that we'd be able to do it. And that plus the two, the the, the mainsail for the the Bristol Channel Cutter is a big, heavy main. Um, and it's salty. <laughs> um, and yet he was absolutely right. We were able to do it. We were able to flake it and put it away without it touching the ground. So uh, kudos to him. And that's a Greek word, by the way, kudos. And contrary to common American usage, it's not a plural. There's no such thing as a kudo. Kudo does not exist. Kudos is a singular meaning fame, glory or renown. So what I was mentioning earlier about language... Uh, you can see I'm repeating ad infinitum, which is a Latin expression. Thank you. Quaderat <laughs> demonstrandum. One of the benefits of entering a new sailing environment is that you sometimes see boats that you don't normally see and you come across owners that you would not normally come across. And I met a charming individual, a Frenchman, 
by the name of Jean yesterday in the boatyard, just um, a couple of hundred yards from where we were putting France's boat away. And he had a Camper, Nich Camper Nicholson 38, which is a lovely English boat. It was a center cockpit, um, cutaway full keel, um, had a really uh, good size aft cabin. Um, to me, it was plenty of room and a, and a nice stand-up shower. And I, I've been, I'm the current owner of an Excalibur 26, an Islander Excalibur 26 that was built in 1969, which I sail out of Marina del Rey. But like a lot of sailors, I'm always looking for something a little bit larger. And my, my family have no interest in sailing at all. And I'm going to hope that it's nothing to do with my personality, that it's just that I don't have the right boat. But this boat in particular looked like it's something that my wife would be happy to come on board. And um, like a lot of boat owners, Jean was, had a certain pride of ownership. He was the second owner of that boat. He'd bought her in 1984, and she was in 1969. And what I was particularly interested to see was that the boat was designed by John Alden. Um, after I spoke to him yesterday, I went back to my hotel and I did some research on the boat. And it turns out that Camper Nicholson bought the designs from John Alden. John Alden, of course, was a very successful and influential American um, boat des nautical designer whose career, I believe, stretched from the 1930s through to the early 1960s. And my first sailboat was a 1957 Alden Sloop. It was only 20 feet long, but it was the boat in which I consider I learned how to sail. We didn't have an outboard motor on it. We would sail it in and out of the dock at the Mar at Marina del Rey, myself and my boating partner. So I've really got a, uh, a, a, a weakness for John Alden design. So when I saw this Camper Nicholson 38, I was first l lured by its looks and second by its provenance so to speak so I'm going to be looking uh, scouring the internet when I get back and having a look to see if I can have a look at a, a Camper Nicholson to buy maybe I don't think there are any on the west coast that I'm aware of but there's certainly some in the UK certainly some in Europe and probably half a dozen maybe on the east coast so um, that's the again that's the benefit of uh, p being in a, a foreign or an unusual shipyard you see things you didn't see before you look at boats you've never considered before and maybe you'll end up owning something that you would never otherwise have owned. So, um, just speaking of podcasts, which you're obviously doing right now, but um, whilst we're putting the boat up in Bodrum here, and uh, last night I remember listening to Andy Shell's 59 North Sailing podcast, and uh, I know that Franz and Andy Shell have reciprocated in interviewing each other on that on those podcasts but I was listening to that last night and um, the other podcast that I was listening to today whilst um, whilst we're tying down the um, the cover for the boat was the uh, escape pods shooting the breeze sailing the escape pods yep so um, and on that on that one there it was uh, the second part of a chat with Kamal who's uh, building a boat. So um, that was the other podcast that I was listening to. Um, the other podcasts that I have on my playlist normally are the, um, the Sail Loot podcast. And uh, typically that talks about money, which is good because thinking about going sailing next year full-time, it's nice to know the cost of sailing full-time 
in different locations around the world and just seeing how people do it um, and the different budgets that people have. Obviously, it's it's very customized to the to your lifestyle and you can do it at whatever price you'd like to but uh, it's always good to know the minimum amount that you would need um, to be in a specific area so the sale loot podcast is pretty good for that uh, sort of concentrate on that uh, and the sailing podcast is another one um, with David and Karina Anderson Yes, although we've never heard Karina on the podcast, David. So, um, yeah, but that's that's another one that we listen to. Um, I think it's the same for Neil, but I'll pass the mic over so you can talk about it. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jack. Um, yeah, the 59 North podcast especially, because it is so reliable and regular is pretty much on a constant rotation with me. I listen to it uh, sometimes when I'm walking the dog in the morning and sometimes when I'm sitting at the computer doing work. Um, I do also like uh, David and Karina Anderson's podcast, and I especially like uh, David's um, approach, which is sort of, it's this wide-eyed wonder that comes through across the microphone, which I really like, since I'm guilty of being childish more often than not myself. I like to view things with a childlike wonder. It's very easy to become jaded in the world we live in, and um, there's nothing quite like the romance of the sea, and David really captures that, I think. Um, And then previously, there are a couple of podcasts that I used to listen to that now seem to have either been discontinued or are very spasmodic. One was the Furled Sailed podcast um, from, I think, Chesapeake Bay, I think, was their home base. Um, And the Good Old Boat podcast is very useful, too. Um, but um, perhaps one of the best ones, in fact, the one that first got me into it, was the pod, podcast away from the Catamaran Dos Gatos. Uh, it was an English gentleman by the name of um, Lane Fox was his last name. It was a hyphenated name, and I forget his first name. Might have been David, might have been Michael. But anyway, the, the boat was called the the, um, the Dos Gatos, and he podcast over a period of two or three years. Following, from, I think he started off in the Caribbean went through the Panama Canal onto the Galapagos and across the Pacific to Australia. And um, I really used to enjoy that podcast. I think there were at least 30 or 40 episodes. Always typically delivered late at night when he was on watch and you could hear the waves lapping against the pontoons of the catamaran. It was, in, it, it was both incredibly evocative and very educational. And one thing that struck me that I learned early on was the benefits of prudence when going into a new harbour. And he would talk repeatedly about how he planned his approach to a new island or a new atoll. And he would never, as a matter of course, come into any new anchorage or harbour at night. I'm going to walk into the uh, lobby here because someone sounds as though they're grinding a saw. Um, And it actually surprises me how many accidents you hear about because people come into unknown harbours at night. Um, and uh, as I said, I, I think that was one of the first lessons I learned from listening to that particular podcast very early on in my sailing career. And um, so if I gained one thing from that, uh, from that podcast is don't go into a new harbour at night. Just time your approach, lessen your sail, slow your speed down, whatever you have to do. Make sure that the sun has risen and that way you can all stay safe. And in, and in fact, uh, there is actually a cautionary tale that I can 
that I can share that isn't too far away from, from that. Um, I have a neighbor, a gentleman by the name of Mark Belinich, who I chartered with in Croatia a few years ago. And he had used to ha- be the owner of an absolutely go- gorgeous boat. It was a Kettenberg 38. I think it was built in 1952-53, and it was by John Alden, who we mentioned before. And he absolutely loved that boat. We took it on several trips to Catalina, had an absolutely wonderful time on it, and beautiful lines, long overhangs. When you put it on its ear, it just moved like a knife through water. Anyway, for one reason or another, he decided that he had to sell it. And he sold it to an individual who'd made some money out of the dot-com boom. And then he sold it to someone else who was a very inexperienced sailor and decided that he was going to sail from San Francisco to Maui. And he was going to do it single-handed. Um, and it had no, the, the boat was called Kachina. And it had no, Kachina had no self-steering gear, no autopilot, nothing. So how, I have no idea how he did it, but he actually made it to Maui Harbor. But he came in at dead of night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and my understanding is, is that there's a one very well-known underwater hazard in Maui Harbor, which this individual contrived to hit, and he sank the boat. Or as my friend Mark put it, he killed the boat. He was rescued bobbing in the water by the, uh, the harbor patrol of the Coast Guard. I don't know which, but unfortunately that beautiful, wonderful boat that had um, just thrived under the care of so many care- careful owners for the last 50 years disappeared because of a... Um, uh, not a moment's carelessness, but perhaps a, a five-day campaign careless uh, campaign of carelessness by someone who really should have known better. And um, so that really reinforces what I said. You know, you have to be conservative and you should never enter a strange harbour in the middle of the night. Thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions on future episodes, please contact me. I'm looking for ideas. Franz at medsailor.com and also consider buying some of the lessons if you're trying to learn to be a sailor. Can't teach you to sail, but I can teach you some of the theory in my audio lessons. All right, till next time, get out there and go sailing. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe? What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? (laughs) The introduction and exit quotes for this podcast were from the movie Risky Business, released in 1983 and written by Paul Brickman. The dialogue, which was used in order, were played by... Curtis Armstrong, who in the movie played the character Miles Dalby, Nicholas Pryor, who in the movie played Joel's father, Mr. Goodson, and Tom Cruise, who was the main character, 
who played the character of Joel Goodson. <laughs> 